The sermon text today is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. This can be found in pages 823 and 824 in the Pew Bible. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you had pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Lord Jesus, we want to present these minutes to you and our thoughts and affections in these minutes to you, our capacities, our histories, our hopes, our longings. Our repentance to present it all to you as treasure that rightfully belongs to you. And we pray for the ministry of your spirit now to make your glory known to us again. We pray for salvation of the lost and for the beautification of your bride. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, unforgiveness 
between Christians is wickedness. Do you notice that when the master in Jesus' parable confronts the servant who was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant, do you notice how the master in verse 32, the king, addresses his servant? He says, you wicked servant. And the implication is clear. For unforgiveness between Christians is wickedness. And that's not my opinion. It's Jesus' opinion. See, we dare not ever put asunder what Jesus has joined together. Forgive us our debts as we, as we, it's not a period there, right? As we also have forgiven our debtors. When we rationalize unforgiveness, toward one another, when we do it by papering over grudges and rationing out to one another uh, counterfeit, shallow, very circumstantial forgiveness. And in the process, what we're really doing is withholding our love from our brother or sister. When we're really exposing them, we're keeping them exposed to our unforgiveness We're withholding from them unfettered fellowship with us. We're keeping back some of our heart. When we do that, do you know what? Heaven weeps. Heaven weeps, the Holy Spirit is grieved, and hell gives us a standing ovation. Because Jesus taught us. Hell knows exactly what Jesus has taught us, which is that we must always read unforgiveness backwards and forgiveness backwards. The forgiven forgive. And the unforgiving are unforgiven. There are no limits. Peter is sure that there's a limit when he comes up to Jesus. He is sure that there's a limit. But Jesus assures him that there are no limits either of length frequency 77 times or of depth from your heart Peter verse 35 our duty friends our duty our privilege in the gospel is so simple it's so clear it's so unmistakable of course of course there are complexities but let's not presume to graduate ourselves to those complexities until we have been mastered by the simplicity. Forgive your brother from your heart and do it 77 times, a limitless number of times. That's simple. That's clear. The forgiven forgive. This morning, uh, we're going to look at this uh, parable and Jesus' interaction with Peter that precipitates the parable, and we're going to learn three things about forgiveness in the gospel inside the church. This is really the focus. Again, we're in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, right? And the focus in chapter 18 is Jesus is 
essentially explicating the implications of his cross for his disciples. He's talking about what life in the church is supposed to be like. So the the context of this parable and Jesus's instruction from it have to do with relationships among his disciples. And so forgiveness in the gospel among and between Christians has a number of facets. It has a particular shape or actually even multiple shapes. And this morning we're going to learn three things about the forgiveness that Jesus expects his cross to beget inside his church. He's going to show us that it is always perpendicular, it is always triangular, and it's always circular. That's the root and the fruit of forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, and the path of forgiveness if you don't like geometry. So let's think first about how forgiveness is always perpendicular. That's the first thing that Jesus teaches us in this passage. And here's what I mean when I say that forgiveness is always perpendicular. I mean that it always, as Jesus shows us in the parable, has two dimensions. There's a vertical dimension of forgiveness that is the forgiveness we receive from God. That's the root. And Jesus shows us in the parable through his exchange with Peter that that root, when that root is present, it will always, always produce horizontal fruit. Always. That root, when that root of vertical forgiveness from God is planted by God's grace in a person's life, it is never unfruitful. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. These two dimensions cannot exist without the other. If this is really happening at the horizontal level, you read it backwards to see the real root and the explanation. It's not in the heart of man, it's in the heart of God. So look at how Peter approaches Jesus. He's listened very carefully to Jesus and what Jesus has been saying in the chapter thus far about how to deal with your your brother when he sins against you and how you go pursue him and you seek reconciliation. You don't despise one of your brothers because you've been rescued by that shepherd Jesus talks about just as he has. And Peter, but Peter's got this practical question. He comes to Jesus and he's, he's, there's got to be a limit here. I love Peter. He says and does what we so rarely have the courage to say or do. So he comes to Jesus. It appears that he comes to him one-on-one because I think maybe he's learned that when he opens his mouth up in front of the group, it usually doesn't go well. And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? See, there was a prevailing uh, rabbinical rule of thumb. It was three times. That, that seemed a lot. So by comparison, Peter's doubling of it, at least is doubling. It seems lavish, right, by comparison. And what Jesus does is blows Peter's scales out of the water. See, Peter's asking about the horizontal question. He's, he's asking, okay, this is what I'm focusing on. My brother sins against me. And how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? Seven times for the, the same sin? It, that, that would seem like a, a fairly generous uh, uh, border to draw around uh, the forgiveness I'm called to give to my brother. But Jesus absolutely demolishes all his categories. And he says there's no limit 
Now, in the ESV, it translates. The Greek here is very difficult. When you read commentators, they all kind of scratch their head. That's why the King James, uh, the King James translated this uh, 490 times, you know, 70 times 7. Uh, here, it's 77. The, the reason is because in the Greek, you've got a number as an adverb. Yeah, that's right. I said that. A number as an adverb. So it's like the 77thly that's how you're supposed to do it. But the point is clear. It's unlimited. And notice the way Jesus says it. Jesus knows that this is going to utterly overturn Peter's expectations. I, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times. See, that's how men think. That's the farthest reach of the mind and heart of men. Seven times. That's the generosity of men. That's the max from a human perspective. And I am not confined or limited by what your imagination can reach. I say to you 77 times, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I am calling you on the basis of my cross, on the basis of the gospel that I have come to bring to make a way for unlimited forgiveness toward your brother or your sister. I have thoughts and treasures in my heart and in my purposes that your imagination cannot even conceive. And he proceeds to tell him a parable to explain not only how that could be so, but why it's so. And that's what he does in the parable. And you notice, it's very interesting what Jesus does how he responds to Peter. Because Peter, like I said before, Peter is asking the horizontal question, how do, I, how do I deal with my brother who sins against me? In other words, Peter's talking about uh, his relationship with one of his equals, one of his brothers on the horizontal level. That's where he is focused. But you notice, uh, Jesus, he, and he wants a rule. Peter wants a rule. Jesus doesn't give him a rule. He gives him a story. And that story does Oh, that's so important, by the way. We want rules. Because we would very much like to have God be distant. And we would like to manage this whole thing ourselves. But God doesn't give us rules. He gives us a story. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Sounds like rules, right? It's not a rule. The sentence doesn't end there. It ends this way. As God in Christ forgave you, you're part of a larger story. And Jesus tells Peter this story, and the story doesn't begin where Peter wants it to begin. It doesn't begin at the horizontal level. It begins at the vertical. It's a story of unequals. And this is so critical to see this, my friends, because you cannot, I cannot understand 
I cannot see, I cannot accurately see or perceive what my horizontal duty is, its magnitude or the power available for it, unless I view it through the lens of the vertical. If I start at the horizontal, the cost will be too high. It's not humanly possible. I will think that the duty that I have is very limited. But when I view, as Jesus teaches Peter and us to do through this parable, when I view my horizontal obligation, not by itself, but through the lens of this vertical gift, this, uh, this, this gift of forgiveness that comes in a relationship of unequals, then I can begin to understand it accurately. And that's what happens in this parable. You've got a servant, a servant who is indebted to his king in an amount that cannot be imagined. See, this is where Jesus begins with Peter. He says, Peter, let me through this story make sure you understand how unscalable the magnitude of your debt to God is. Friends, that's what Jesus is telling us as well. This servant owes his king 10,000 talents, which means nothing to us. But the talent was the largest unit of measurement in Jesus' day. It was usually about 75 pounds of precious metal. It's the largest unit of measurement. And 10,000 was the largest unit of counting in mathematics, so that everything was a multiple. Big numbers were multiples of 10,000. That's exactly how it is in Japanese, too. Okay, a million, I think, is a hundred ten thousandths. Did I do that right? Yes, I did. Same thing here. And so when those two things go together, wow, that, was, that felt very risky to me. Okay, when I do math out loud in front of the congregation, okay? So what's happening is that in Jesus' story, the largest unit of measurement, a talent, is being put together with the largest number. And that combination is supposed to depict something that is totally immeasurable. I mean, just a talent was the equivalent of 20 years of an ordinary laborer's wages. Just one. So this is a number that is just so big, it just cannot be measured. It's a debt too big to comprehend. It's a debt too big to manage. It's a debt larger than the man's life. A liability that totally exceeds his ability and he's incurred it. That's an actual debt that he owes. And it's, you just can't even imagine from a human perspective how a human could incur such a great debt. But that's only possible if you isolate the, the servant from his relationship to the king. But just as Jesus does with Peter, he's calling us, friends, to raise our eyes along the vertical to the throne in heaven to understand the magnitude of our debt to God because of our sin and to remember humbly the scale of our cosmic insolvency. There's not a single person who has ever lived who could ever scale the debt 
the magnitude of the debt that they owe to God. Do you have any idea how great God is? Friends, do you think about that? I was reading this week in the LA Times, I, I scan for astronomy articles every week, and there was an article in the LA Times about something that was recently published in April of this year. Uh, observe, uh, astronomers all around the world observe this uh, supernova. And I forget the number of the star, but there was a gamma ray blast from that star as a result of the supernova. And uh, the, the lead astronomer who published the paper was quoted as saying in the, in the LA Times that just the energy from the gamma ray blast in that supernova was exceeded by this amazing magnitude, all the energy of our sun from its very beginning. Now that's amazing to me because you know, and I've shared it with you before, that every second, one of my favorite statistics is that every second on our sun, which is a podunk little star, every second 700 million tons of hydrogen is fused. And to think that in that single gamma ray burst from that one star, more energy was released than has been released in the entire history of our sun. I thought God is very big. We need to think that way. But you notice the servant, when he's faced with this debt, he doesn't, he's not overwhelmed. And look at his plan, verse 26. It's very practical, sort of. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. You know, we laugh at the servant, but we often relate to God that way ourselves, don't we? I, you got my attention with my wife's cancer, so now I'll start going to church. I'll start reading my Bible. Friends, your debt to God because of your sin is too great for anything in your life to ever compensate him for it. It's too big for you to cure. And the only reason you don't think it is is because you don't see God. You see, what the servant wants is he wants time. He's pleading for patience, but it's really patience that's rooted in ignorance, right? Ignorance about himself and ignorance about the, the true nature of his king. You see, with himself, he thinks that, that within himself, you should give me patience, king, because within myself, I'll figure out a way to cure this debt. I'm still hoping in myself, yes, I missed the deadline. But I haven't given up. I'll find a way. I thought of Isaiah. You know, when Isaiah's in the temple in Isaiah 6, he says, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, remember what Isaiah says? He says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the servant is exactly the opposite of Isaiah. Because when Isaiah sees the King for who he is, He doesn't try to elevate himself. He doesn't try to recover himself by his own promises and his own performance. Isaiah knows in that moment the only hope he has is if grace comes down to him, not merit flowing up from him. The servant doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand the scale of his debt and he doesn't understand the king. You see, friends, if you think that you can pay God back through your obedience, that he is going to see you towing the line and making promises of reformation and say, wow, that impresses me. Wow, that obedience, that's special. You don't know him. And you don't know yourself. You can't pay a debt that is larger than you and all your capacities. Even when you're at your best, you see, because your debt is not manageable within human proportions, because your debt is owed to the infinite king who who blows up stars like they're birthday cake candles. Do you feel that? See, Jesus is wanting Peter to be overwhelmed, to place himself in that story and to see that that what he owes, that what's happened in this vertical component is something so massive and so beautiful that God has done something so amazing. And that to, to think that you could manipulate him through your obedience or your promises of reformation. Friends, God is already entitled to your perfect obedience every second of your life. So when you promise him, a promise you won't keep, when you promise him that you're now going to be obedient, you're not giving him anything that he isn't already entitled to. There's no new value. It's an insult against God to think otherwise. There's only one way for this debt to be paid, and it isn't going to come from you. It's going to come from the king, which is exactly what happens in this story. The servant, the servant just skims the wildest dream that this servant has. The wildest dream that this servant has is that he's going to be able to tap in to the patience of the king. That the king would give him the opportunity to uh, enter into a repayment plan. That he'd give him some postponement, some grace period. He has no idea that this king, when he is confronted by the servant's debt, when he faces the servant's debt, you you see what the text says in verse 27? And out of, he doesn't doesn't rebuke the servant for saying, that's ridiculous, you could never pay back 10,000 talents. If I calculated this out, that would be 200,000 years of an ordinary laborer's career. You could never do it. The king doesn't argue with him. He says, or the text says, and out of pity for him. Now that's a very important word 
Because that same word is used back in chapter 9, verse 36. We spent a lot of time looking at that. Do you remember when Jesus is seeing the crowds and, and Matthew reports, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Same word. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? So beautiful. So beautiful. And you remember, I, I shared with you what had been so helpful for me. My favorite commentator on Matthew's gospel uh, is a man no longer alive, R.T. France, and he translated that, that Greek word. He said, what this is essentially saying is that Jesus' heart went out to the crowds. That that's what compassion is. Jesus' heart goes out to the crowds. The same thing is happening here. The king is facing a servant who owes him a king's fortune. And yet what happens? How does the king respond? Is he angry? No. His heart goes out to that servant. That's absolutely amazing. Do you see what's behind me? The cross. Do you see what the cross is? The cross is God's heart going out to the world indebted to him. In the face of the world's debt, your debt, my debt, which is unscalable in its magnitude. What is God's response? His response is his heart went out to the world. And this morning, it's still going out to every one of us in this room in the offer of the gospel. It's absolutely staggering. This vertical forgiveness this gift of pardon from on high. The king releases the servant of all his debt, forgives him, sets him free. You see, the king gives the servant something far better, far better than the servant dreamed. There were, there were treasures and purposes and things in the king's heart that the servant didn't even imagine. Treasures that were so deep, only the king could reach them. Treasures the servant never imagined and which the king gladly drew out and lavished upon the servant in order to ransom the servant. Friends, we need to remember that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're in not this story, but in reality where the king, the king of glory, had purposes in his heart, treasures so deep, so beautiful, so inexpressibly great, that in the fullness of time, he pulled out from the treasuries of his heart the unsearchable riches of Christ. He brought that treasure forth, not in response to the merit of men or the repayment plans of men or the promises of reformation that men with half hearts offered to him. No, he brought it forth with his whole heart. 
And that treasure was Jesus Christ, his son, the one who is telling Peter and us this parable. And why did the Father do that? He did that so that he could forgive us from his heart. From his heart. The king ransoms, not his servants. The gospel is so much better than this story. Because in the story, the king ransoms his servant. Friends, in reality, the king of kings ransoms his enemies. He ransoms, he pays a king's ransom for his enemies. And he doesn't just forgive us from his heart, but in the gospel, friends, by sending his son into the world, the king the king ransoms us with his heart. When you were dead, when I was dead in our trespasses and sins, God's heart went out to us with his son to live a life that incurred no debt to God. Because he kept the law of God. Here is a substitute. Here is one who did what we could not do in life and then went for us in our place as the very heart of God going out to sinners for sinners in his substitutionary death on the cross. And then God's heart is not done going out to sinners. Not done. He's not done even with the death of Jesus on the cross. He is nowhere near finished in sending his heart out to sinners because he raises Jesus from the dead to give him back to us yet again. And even then, the treasures of God's heart are not exhausted. There are still more treasures that this king brings out of his heart, friends. And the treasures are this, the offer of the gospel to the nations. How is it, my Christian brothers and sisters, that you heard the gospel? How is it that Caroline Timmerman made a profession of faith, or that the other new members made a profession of faith. How did that happen? Yes, there is a human explanation for it. Somebody came and told us the good news. It could have been in a book. It could have been through a sermon. It might even happen today. But understand this, that it was God who saved you, that it was the riches of God's heart that he opened up and lavished on you that it was, it was because of what he had done in Jesus Christ that he forgave you from his heart. And Peter needs to understand that. We need to understand it. And friends, that treasure is so big, it's so beautiful, it's so overwhelming, it dwarfs supernovas and gamma ray blasts, it, it, it comes from on high sea. Anything we could, we could muster up with our lives could never reach the heights of the Lord of hosts. Never. But that Lord of hosts, because he is the high king of heaven, he can come for us, which is what he's done in Jesus. And so the second half of Jesus' parable emphasizes that, that this gift, this vertical root, will always bear horizontal 
fruit. You see how the master, uh, the king, just assumes this. When he finds out that, that his servant has not, uh, has not forgiven the debt of his fellow servant, which is just, it's not an insignificant amount of money. It's 100 days wages. A, hundred, a denarius was a single day's wage. So this is, you know, this is 100 days wages. That's a lot, okay? But notice how the king fully expects that what he has given to the servant vertically is not going to end with the servant. Do you see that? He says in verse 33, notice this. And should you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, it's the king's assumption that his forgiveness is too big, way too big, way too big for the servant's life to contain it. In fact, it's, it's, it's so extravagant. It's, so, it's such a shock that there's no way that by its very nature, if this is what the servant has received, there's no way that his life could contain all of the implications. Friends, if I said to you that I have swallowed the Pacific Ocean, but you don't get drenched when you get near me, you have reason to question whether what I said is true. The master expects that the beauty of the forgiveness that he has poured out from above will be transformed into a glad duty to extend it horizontally. And that when the servant doesn't do that, that means that he has never really accepted the gift. The servant is punished because he has not stewarded what the master was willing to give him. And you notice how Jesus steps out of the parable in verse 35 and gives each of us and Peter a very stern warning. And we need to take it seriously. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. We must read unforgiveness backwards. The unforgiving are unforgiven. If, if, if God's forgiveness doesn't flow not only to me but through me it never flowed to me to begin with forgiving our brother from our heart what does that mean it's simple this is not hard well it may be hard it's not complex it means a full release friends it means a clean slate it means a new beginning, the very thing that you and I receive every morning from God with new mercies, mercies that never come to an end. That's what it means. It means that there's nothing left. It means that there's no held on to, nursed, cherished, treasured, grievance, grudge, 
hard feelings. It means that the door of our hearts are, is wide open. It doesn't mean postponement. It doesn't mean probation. It doesn't mean that you've imposed on your brother or sister some kind of repayment plan and, and made this kind of provisional condition that if they do such and such, you'll then forgive them. No, friends, because that's not how the king has dealt with you. So that's what it means to forgive your brother from your heart. And as many times as it takes, as deep as you can go, we must not leave our brother to his own promises or his own performances. We must shelter him with ours in response to the gospel. We're the one who makes a promise to him. We're the ones who, who die to our grievance again and again. It's our performances and our promises of, about our own heart before the Lord that we are going to enable him to benefit from. Forgiveness is always horizontal. It is always vertical. It is therefore always perpendicular. That was the longest point. It's also triangular, always. And what I mean by that is when you think about the implications of what Jesus is saying, you say, how could this be humanly possible? It's not. It's not humanly possible to forgive your brother who sins against you an unlimited number of times as deep as you go. That's not humanly possible. It's not supposed to be. And that's why Jesus makes it very clear in the parable, just as in the rest of the New Testament, that forgiveness is always triangular. It's never just a two-party transaction. It is always a three-party transaction. And that's very true in the parable. Do you notice that? Peter's question assumes that there are only two parties involved, him and his brother. But Jesus tells him a story in which forgiveness between equals always involves a third party, the king. And you notice how the king, in the parable, assumes that he has every right, because of what he has done for the servant, that he has every right now to govern the terms of the servant's relationship with his fellow servant. Do you see that? That, in, in effect, what the king is holding the unforgiving servant accountable for is that is that is is that the king the king has a right the the servant let me put it this way the servant thinks that his relationship with his fellow servant is just his business but the way the king responds to the servant makes it clear that the king thinks it's his business that's amazing. It's not a debt that the fellow servant owes to the king. It's a debt that the fellow servant owes to the, to the servant. And yet the king is saying, that relationship is my business because you're, my, you're both my servants. And in my house, there has to be harmony. In my house, which is defined by my generosity, there's a, there's a family household ethic that must prevail everywhere. And so the king, in effect, is acting as the advocate, as the guarantor, as the mediator on behalf of the fellow servant. Friends, Jesus is a much higher king, a much greater king than the king in the parable. And our debt 
is far greater than the servants in the parable. And our relationship, therefore, with our brother or sister is much more his business. Friends, the brother or sister who sins against us, even repeatedly so, is never alone. We are never just dealing with him or her. Just as the servant thought that his relationship with his fellow servant was just his relationship, we often make the mistake of assuming that this is just a, a horizontal segment between me and the brother or sister who sinned against me. And Jesus is saying, you cannot think that way. You must always think about my presence in that, uh, in that relationship. And as far as your brother or sister is concerned, I am the guarantor of their debt to you. I am their advocate. I am mediating for them. Friends, there's somebody, there may be many people in your life. It could even be your spouse who is coming up on your mind this morning over and over and over again where you get uncomfortable. There are parts in the sermon where you're able to forget it and you feel better. And then somehow the sermon by the Spirit is coming back and focusing on those relationships where you are not obeying Jesus' command to forgive. And I wonder if it makes any difference to you this morning. Would your attitude change if when, you're, when you pulled up, sometimes even unbidden it happens, when you're mental, in your mental image of them, in your heart's image of them, you saw Jesus standing next to them, facing you with them. Would the sight of his taking their side change your heart? Because you know he is on their side. They're your brother. They're your sister. Your relationship with them is really his business more than it's yours. But you know what's interesting about this? is it's also triangular from your side, from my side. Because the cost of forgiveness is very high. Friends, anybody who tells you that forgiveness is free doesn't understand the gospel. Forgiveness is not free. It's very costly. It costs a king's ransom. What Jesus calls us to do here cannot be paid by human effort. Jesus calls me to forgive my brother or my sister who has sinned against me from my heart an unlimited number of times. That is a cost that in myself I cannot bear. My only hope, my only hope is if there is a fortune for me to be able to draw from that is not my own fortune. Think about the parable. The king is willing to ransom his servant from, out of his own wealth. The, the servants, this is really important to see this, 
friends, because so often we have unbiblical understandings of what forgiveness is. We often think that forgiveness is just erasing the debt in the ledger. Because that's what God does. It's right, you, you may have heard this quote before. It's God's job to forgive. No, it's not. It's God's job to be God, to be glorified, to be holy, to be beautiful. It's not his job to forgive. Forgiveness requires that in the universe overseen by the holy and righteous God, forgiveness requires that the holiness and righteousness of God be satisfied. And if the debt is just erased, it's a mockery of God's holiness. And in the parable, friends, the, the, the king is willing to ransom his servant, but he ransoms the servant out of his own wealth. The debt doesn't just vanish into thin air. The king makes a decision to pay those 10,000 talents out of his own heart. It costs the king 10,000 talents to forgive that servant. And the king rightly expects that the echo of that extravagance, that the shockwave of his largesse is going to reverberate through the servant's life and into the lives of others. He, inspected, he expected the servant who'd been enriched by his generosity to then turn around and, and enrich others. The king was giving the servant a fountain that would overflow that, that he could then always have resources, right, to, to, that would be sufficient. They'd be the king's resources, sufficient to cover any debt. And that's exactly the same thing that's happening in our lives. Jesus has called us, friends, it's intentionally triangular, right? It requires more than I have to give, and it requires more than my brother or sister deserves. It requires a king's ransom already paid for both of us a fortune that our minds can't comprehend. Friends, look at that cross with me. Just look at it again. Can you begin to comprehend the magnitude of what the Father spent for your forgiveness? Of course you can't. You, you can begin. You can begin to touch the outer fringes. The, the longest you've been a Christian, you're, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. The magnitude of what the Father was willing to spend in sending His Son into the world is just, it's larger than a human brain. It's larger than a human heart can, can get our arms around. And can you imagine, can you even begin to compre comprehend the magnitude of what Jesus, His Son, was willing to spend for our forgiveness on that same cross? Friends, it's, it's with the cross in mind and in view that we are called to forgive our brothers and sisters. It's with the riches of Christ, the treasuries, the open door to the treasuries of the Father's heart and the Son's heart. Jesus is not calling us into that triangle by ourselves. He's calling us in there with his riches, turning to his riches. And guess what? There is more than enough there for all of us. There is more than enough there for all of us. There is nothing, there is nothing that a brother or sister in Christ can do to me. 
for which the cross is not sufficient. In the house of the king, friends, if we believed this, if we really saw the cross, see, this, the reason this is so urgent, the reason Jesus is so stern with Peter, the reason he takes such time and he's so meticulous with this issue and he carefully constructs this parable, he doesn't just leave Peter with a rule, but he tells him the story. The reason Jesus does this is because this question is ultimately Uh, the lens through which uh, his ministry. It's a gauge. Peter's question is a gauge of his understanding of Jesus' ministry. And his gauge isn't working very well. Friends, there is so much, there is more than enough for all of us in this king's ransom that we do not have to deal with each other. We're children of the king. We've been called into the household of God. And guess what? In the household of God, there is so much of that king's ransom available for all of us that we don't have to go digging under the cushions of our brother or sister's sofa to look for pocket change. We can let them go. We can give them the new beginning that God gave us. And we can honor Jesus Christ by continuing to draw upon the wealth of what he has ransomed us with. Last point, forgiveness is usually circular. What do I mean by that? Well, although forgiveness is always perpendicular and it's always triangular, it's usually circular. Usually, not always. And here's what I mean. As much as Jesus wants and as much as I want for the forgiveness of my brother or my sister to be an event that is finished, that's complete, that I don't have to go back and revisit, in my experience in 32 years as a Christian, here's what normally happens to me. I begin, I begin by faith to make, um, to make, a stand on forgiving my brother or sister. But I find that often from that point, my path becomes circular in the sense that I begin, because of resentments, because of whatever, remaining corruption in my own heart. Let's just be honest. I begin to wander away from that path. And I began to think about my brother or sister in ways that doesn't, that withholds from them my heart, my fellowship, my love, that withholds from them a new beginning. I want them, uh, I want them. I feel very much uh, like uh, the servant uh, to his fellow servant. That there are times when I, I want to say to my, my, uh, my brothers or sisters who sinned against me, pay what you owe. And what happens is in the mercy of God, as I wander away, the gospel brings me home again. And that's really what it so often looks like for me. It's circular. It's a path. I don't want to get off that path. I don't want it to be veering off into the wilderness because I believe Jesus when he teaches us that we have to read unforgiveness backwards. 
the unforgiving are unforgiven. No, I want to be kept by the mercy of God. And so, you know, I still remember uh, very vividly. Well, I mean, think about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a daily prayer. Remember this? Uh, Jesus doesn't just instruct us to hallow, to, to pray that our Father will hallow his name by giving us daily bread. He also instructs us that, uh, to pray that our Father will hallow his name by giving us daily grace to daily for, continue to forgive our debtors as we've been forgiven. And I still remember it's one of the most it's one of the one of the most important sentences, sentences I've ever read in the Christian life uh, and it's roughly about 30 years ago it's from your first uh, reflection quote the C.S. Lewis quote if you turn with me there on page three I still remember I was working my way very slowly through C.S. Lewis's book letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer and I got to letter 20 and I read a sentence that has been with me for 30 years Second sentence, last week, while at prayer, I suddenly discovered, or felt as if I did, that I had really forgiven someone I have been trying to forgive for over 30 years. Now, as a new Christian, when I read that, I was overcome with relief because I I realized I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one who struggles with this. I see now what I'm being called to do. I've got to stay on this path, even if it feels circular. I've got to stay on this path. I've got to deal with my heart as it really is, not the fantasy land that, oh, I did that once, that's done. Oh, I've forgiven. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget? That ain't forgiveness doesn't take the gospel to say that. No, I saw when I read that Lewis sentence that I needed to stay on the path even if it was circular. And you know what's interesting? This happens when you preach. The very thing that you're preaching on, God is just pursuing your heart with in the week before you preach on it. And it just so happened that I bumped into one of my former debtors this week. And then I got involved in a conversation, a lengthy conversation, that involved several of my other former debtors. And I'll be honest with you. My heart, at various points, wanted to wring them by the neck and say, pay what you owe. And in that moment, those moments, what I had to do is I had to circle back the gospel. I had to circle back. I had to come back, right? I, I had to circle back to the king's ransom for me and for them. This was more than I could pay on my own. It's not humanly possible to do what Jesus has called me to do. There's only one way to do it. There's only one way to do it. It's with the king's ransom. And so I circled back to the gospel. I remembered Ephesians 4, 29 through Ephesians 5, 2. I reminded myself of this passage. Friends, it may for you take a long time. 
It may take many times for you to forgive your brother or sister from your heart. But let me say this, don't get off the path. The path may feel circular, but you, and it may feel like you're not making any progress. But friends, as long as you're on that circular path, you are making pro- progress. Stay on the path. Deal with God Honestly, if you, I mean, obviously the best case scenario would be that you, you, you have a grievance from your brother or sister and you say, Father, I do your will. I forgive them. That would be wonderful. I'm just not often there. So I have to be, I have to start a little bit further back. I want to do your will. I want to forgive my brother or sister from my heart. Help me to do that. I praise you that there's even a desire in my heart to want to do that. Because I know I didn't make that desire. But you know what? Sometimes I'm not even there. Sometimes I want to say, pay what you owe. And so I have to start back here. Father, I want to want to do your will. Wherever you are, stay on the path. It's the path of the gospel. It's the path that the king's ransom has purchased for you and for me. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I am I am so grateful and I join with my brothers and sisters in thanking you for the inexhaustible riches of the ransom you've paid for us, your bride. To grant that in each of our lives you, by your spirit, would teach us what it means to faithfully steward that fortune for your glory and our eternal joy. We pray in your name. Amen.